Welcome to another episode of the Phoenix Rising Podcast, Journeys of Descending into the Mysteries and Rising from the Roots. I am your host, Lisa Hillier. Thank you so much for being here with me as I explore what it means to be human and spirit on this planet at this time. As we dive into the depths through these conversations and rise from the roots in a really powerful way. And so today on the show, I have Georgie Collinson. Georgie is a certified hypnotherapist, anxiety mindset coach, inner voice facilitator, and bachelor degree qualified naturopath and nutritionist. She has helped hundreds of clients worldwide through her online programs to master their anxious mind and is host of the chart-topping Anxiety Reset podcast. She's deeply committed to helping career-driven women step out of anxiety and fear using the Anxiety Reset method so they can thrive with confidence and pursue their heart's desires. Georgie has just released her book, The Anxiety Reset Method. We dive into all the realms in this episode of anxiety, diet, gut, alcohol, cold plunging, which is something I'm so passionate about at this time. And so we dive into anxiety. And if this episode resonates with you, please like, share, write a review, share with your friends. It all helps to get these conversations out to a wider audience. And if you write a review, please screenshot it and send it to me. I love to see how the podcast lands for each and every every one of you. And if you feel called to make a financial contribution, please consider joining the Patreon portal. Upcoming, I have the Crohn's Council as part of the Patreon portal. A deep dive into all things perimenopause, menopause, all the ways to prepare yourself in your late 30s to prevent early menopause and just a council of women coming together to talk about a transition that isn't commonly spoken about. So if you feel called to join that, the link is in the show notes. Sending you so much love and can't wait to dive into this episode with Georgie with you. Welcome to the podcast, Georgie. I'm excited for this conversation in all the realms of anxiety and how that can show up in our world. So to start, love, we're going to start with the question of what has been the journey that has led you to the work that you're offering the world today? Mm, Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. And I was just saying before we hit record, what a beautiful opportunity it is to talk about this topic at a, from the perspective of, you know, deeper dimensions and looking at it from that, that way, which I often am translating anxiety into a very like societal box that like, mm. you know, your everyday person will understand. So really appreciate that. I first often tell the story that it all began with my parents' divorce when I was 19 years old, but the self-inquiry work I've done since then has revealed that lo and behold, the anxiety was there in my childhood. It's just things that I didn't call anxiety at that time. I wasn't allowed to be sensitive enough to acknowledge the pain and the moments where I needed something and that need wasn't met, which we all have. You know, it's not a unique story. It is a story of just growing up in a world where we have parents that are trying to do their best 
-hmm. sometimes their best really does fail us enormously sometimes it fails us in it's almost like death by a thousand cuts and for me it initially manifested as well what I saw and what I was aware of was in my high school years feeling this sense of needing to be perfect being the high achiever getting all the A's getting attention from boys wanting to be the socialite you know all of those things and I was was good at learning how to put on the mask and project that image of perfection even though of course I wasn't perfect and none of us are and but it became this sort of cage that I had to live within and it was almost like I was living a double life of there's perfect Georgie and then there's uh, this other version of me that also really loved connecting with nature and as a, you know, even into my teen years, crawling on my hands and knees through through the trees and shrubs around uh, this beach town where I would spend a lot of time as a, as a kid as well. So I had like two sides of me and I couldn't share one side and I had to be this other version to impress people, you know, and to feel safe and to feel accepted. When my parents divorced, that's when um, I suddenly experienced my what I thought was a stable, solid rock in my life just turned to quicksand. All of a sudden it, it wasn't stable. And I learned that very painful lesson that certainty is a myth, that nothing is certain, that we have to find certainty somewhere else. And initially my way of finding that certainty was more perfectionism, more control, so I thought, okay, if I have the perfect diet, if I eat all the perfect foods, I will have the perfect body. You know, I told myself it was just, you know, for health, but there was more to it for sure. I was sneakily hoping in the background, oh my God, I'll look perfect. And then I will have love and adoration and affection and attention and people will love me and that will make me safe. But that only drew me into more anxiety mm. and more I suppose get, getting myself into brick walls it's like we're trying to try that try this try that is that going to get me sa sa safety and certainty is that I also went into a very beautiful safe secure relationship for five or six years which was amazing in many ways but equally something that I was seeking in order to cocoon myself and feel safe and not necessarily seeking the partnership that was most attuned and right for me it was kind of like it made sense on paper <laughs> so to leave that relationship was probably one of the starting points of me really doing this work to figure out my power within myself no longer having these safety nets and safety blankets and ideas that, you know, I can somehow externally create that safe, safety and certainty. Now, I'm a human being, so I also, you know, I do the dance between both, but certainly it's been that process of coming home to myself, trusting myself, my own truth, um, revealing the layers and the layers of, oh my gosh, there I had a moment where my trust in myself was doubted and I was told that it was wrong and I started to think okay they're right I'm wrong and as I peel back those layers through you know the years it's that understanding oh my gosh like no I am right there were things that I sensed were off and strange about stuff in my younger years that I was right to feel those feelings and so validating that for myself 
I developed something called the anxiety reset method, which is a process of looking at our bodies from a holistic perspective. So considering not just our psychology, not just our thoughts and our beliefs, even though that stuff's really important, also taking into account what went on in our early lives, because that really shapes the formation of the mind and who we think we are and our ego, but also our gut health, our hormones, our nutrition, taking care of our physical vessel too, because if we don't do that, it can be really tough. I don't know if you've ever had those days where you sit down, you want to meditate, but it's just like the mind is racing. The body doesn't want to calm down because maybe something's happened. Maybe there's a stress going on. So there are ways that we can work with our physiology, work with our body, work with our mind, and ultimately also look at the message that anxiety has for us, which is trying to guide us back to our true selves, trying to guide us back to a more loving path. And that is the the soul aspect or the spiritual aspect that I love to work with with people as well. So that's kind of how I've journeyed through all of this and had many, many, um, you know, times where I think I know it all times where I think I've, I've mastered this and I'm here at the top of the mountain. And then the next lesson comes because that is life. And so that's pretty much brings us to today. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you for sharing all that um, magic that you learned along the way and the the highs and the lows and the, you know, the initiations that we meet on our path that ultimately bring us closer to who we are and, and our truth. With so just you spoke to you when you were a younger child and that being where the anxiety actually started from. And I think that's so potent for us to recognize because usually it's like, oh, well, when my dad died or when my parents divorced or when this happened, or you know, but it's usually started way before that. And so they might be those little traumas. Is that fair to say? Or like where the teacher maybe didn't let you speak up or told you to be quiet or or something like that. Could you share with us what those things that we don't think are really big things might look mm-hmm. like that start the anxiety to? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I think this is a great example. I had a client who will remain nameless and <laughs> identificationless, but essentially she had this noticeable catastrophization that would come over her. So she was an amazing high achiever, had done really well in her career. And she would notice that there would be these moments where she had the pressure of an upcoming, almost like she thought it was all about exam stress. And in high school, the way she would feel with an upcoming exam or a test you know, needing to really be prepared and get it all right. And she felt the same way with any work projects. And here she was now uh, in her forties, right? So like living like this much later in life. And when we explored, I mean, I knew it wasn't just the exam stress. And we often, Mm. if we think, oh, I feel that pressure because that's how I was in high school. Let's go back even further because there were things that impacted you. And with her particular case, it was actually, and it took two to three sessions for us to really delve in. And these sessions go two to four hours, (laughs) but we got there. Mm -hmm. We figured out that when she was a very little child, from the moment she could understand relational dynamics and what was going on in the world, she understood one of the first things she knew was that she had a much older father 
I think he was about, uh, you know, in his 50s, 60s when she was born. So she understood the message and for, for in whatever way that he wasn't going to be around for her whole life, that he would be dying in, you know, a couple of decades by the time she left high school, that kind of thing, right? So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of like doing the maths in my head. Am I saying that correctly? But you get the gist yeah, of what I'm yeah. saying. She had this sense of dad's going to slip away. Dad's not going to be here. Maybe it was a family member. Someone said something around, you know, you know, that means that when you're 18, he's going to be in his eighties, right? So there's these subtle things that we pick up. And so from a very young age, she had this sense like this person who I rely on for support and care and love and my survival isn't going to be here my whole life. And so I've got to protect myself. And we figure, and, and also as a two or three-year-old understanding this information, how on earth are you going to protect yourself? You literally can't at two or three years old, but we take upon ourselves this responsibility because we don't feel safe and we need to somehow survive and our mind kicks in to try and help us survive. So her way of coping and surviving was I will achieve massive success. I have to be the best. I have to be really good at everything. I have to make sure I attain that security for myself. And if I'm not the best, I'm going to die. Like I won't survive. I won't live. So there's the catastrophization that was carried on through adulthood and basically formulated as a two or a three-year-old's logic with that level of logic. And so as we get to our adult years, we can rationalize, we can consciously choose, and we can actually go back to the seeds of those moments and change, upgrade that logic, change what story we were telling and realize, okay, at two or three years old, you couldn't do anything about that. You genuinely needed protective adults around you who were going to bring you food and shelter you and take care of you if you were sick. But now as an adult, yes, you still need those things, but you can, you've got so much capability, so much power, choice, freedom to go after those things. We don't need to be in this sort of helpless state that a lot of us stay locked into. So it could be something as simple as knowing, like mm. she had beautiful parents, supportive, loving parents, but knowing dad was going to pass away it, 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 much sooner than her mom or much sooner than a lot of us might say is natural. But it could say, it could be also things like, uh, maybe you had parents that would fight and it wasn't about you. And they would say, this isn't about you. This is just us and our relationship. And you would watch them fight, but it's the helplessness of watching them fight, feeling that pain and feeling completely disregarded and dismissed. Because in that moment, your parents are both acting like children, not acting like parents, not caring for your emotional well-being and your needs. And so a child learns in that situation, watching the parents fight, well, I'm not the priority. I'm not important. My needs don't matter. Their emotional needs come first. And that's where we start stuffing down our feelings. We often become carers, healers. We're the ones trying to look out for everyone else, maybe becoming responsible for younger siblings, taking care of them. Another key one would be being given a job that you can't do at, a, at an age where it's not appropriate, even though it might seem totally fine. Maybe dad wanted you to help him in the tool shed and gave you all the tools and you didn't know how to do it or you couldn't lift something and you feel the weight of expectation that you're meant to be able to do this, but you're six years old. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, you learn, I should be able to do this. I can't do this. There's something wrong with me. 
When in fact, if we logically look at that, you're six years old, you're not meant to be able to lift something heavy or be able to use these tools in the way an adult can. You're allowed to learn that as you get older and it's okay to not know. So these are some examples. Beautiful. Those were perfect examples where we wouldn't think it would create anxiety, depression, however it might show up later on in life, but it it festers in the body. Is that fair to say? Like it kind of bubbles up at different points in our life and is like a, a bit of an explosion. How does anxiety, like how can you tell that you are living with anxiety? How does it show up in the body? In the body, it might look like well, actually a really interesting one people don't often talk about is the freeze response and how we feel basically frozen. So you might notice that there's actually not much that you're feeling in your body. You're potentially a bit disconnected from your body. You're not able to feel, or you might notice your legs feel really heavy or your arms feel really heavy and kind of numb. So it's that's an indication of our freeze response where we just shut down and we feel everything just feels heavy and numb. But typically what we experience is the feeling of it could look like churning butterflies in the stomach, in the belly area, might look like a racing heartbeat. Some people feel like a weight on their chest, like you can't breathe so readily. This is more heightened states of anxiety, like where we're more going into the zone of having a panic attack or, you know, feeling completely you know, overwhelmed in a situation, but that low grade, low level anxiety is usually more of that. You just, you go through your whole day and you haven't really felt your senses. You haven't really been present in your body and you've been all up in this thinking mind, problem solving, worrying, just trying to survive with your logical brain rather than feeling into your body and, feel, and telling your body it's actually safe to be here in the present moment. When I was probably in my twenties and early thirties, I had a lot of anxiety and it would show up for me like a cement ball in my womb space. Like just felt like something is always, something bad is going to happen. That like doom is around the corner and that went away for a really long time. And then I recently went into menopause quite early and that reignited, I'll use that word, uh, the anxiety. And now it shows up as like liquid lava in my heart, just this like, ooh, like something's off, you know, like this burning in my heart. So it's interesting how it can show up in the body and then how you start to correlate with what's going on in the mind yeah. and, and all of that. Does anything come up for you around hormones and anxiety? Oh. Just because I touched on menopause there, which is, you know, your hormones go completely out of whack I'll say they're they're disrupted and totally. that causes all kinds of fun so, times yeah and I mean beautiful descriptions as well of the sensation that's so perfect it's it's I love connecting it to, to images but look with hormones it's this interesting interplay where everything is connected and we can't as much as I wish we could just you know consciously dissolve these experiences and we probably can <laughs> to some extent but we're also humans and we have this physical vessel and our hormones do impact us and so 
it's kind of like I've got this concept called the resilience shield and we have a shield that protects us and makes us more resilient to the triggers of our life, our environment around us, the stresses, the relationships, all of those things that might be entering our space and making us feel uncomfortable or feel that zap of anxiety. Mm. Hormones are one of the ones that, that that's a key part of this shield. And if we don't address that, we're just going to be so much more sensitive to what's already there. You know, you might notice that on a previous day, five years ago, you could receive a particular text message that has a stressful requirement in it or a tax bill or a difficult conversation with a family member or a friend. And you would feel maybe a bit different about it. But then when you're, you're in this state where your hormones are fluctuating and changing, it's much harder to experience that and hold that space and have that conversation and even stay conscious, stay present of how you are reacting um, to the situation. With hormones around uh, menopause, we are looking at, it's actually very similar to what happens in the PMS phase of like your menstrual cycle, where before our period, we typically notice that dip in our resilience. We're more sensitive. We want to cry. We might lash out at people we love. We're thinking, who is this person? I was so zen like a week ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and usually there's relief upon actually getting your period as well. And it's part of the hormone change that happens. Namely, the main one that's really important here is progesterone. We experience a drop in our progesterone levels and progesterone is what creates a calming effect in the brain and it helps us feel nice and relaxed. So it's got a protective effect against anxiety. Now in menopause and even perimenopause, what's happening is we're producing a lot less of this hormone progesterone. In fact, we're not really producing much at all because in order to make progesterone, we must be ovulating regularly. In perimenopause, we're ovulating less frequently. You're usually skipping a month of of ovulating. It's that egg release that creates the progesterone that calms us down. Now the body will reach its equilibrium again as as you move through that phase, but it's literally like going through puberty again. It's another puberty. It's a whole adjustment of your body, your mind, your chemistry, your system, um, recalibrating into another state. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just, it just is what happens. And in fact, there are many, many amazing adaptive things that can happen to, for our resilience in the positive when we enter that stage post-menopause, because we aren't experiencing these wild fluctuations of our hormones every month. We're not necessarily feeling so preoccupied with the pursuit of, um, of, love romantic love and that kind of thing we're just kind of we're we're often more able to be focused on our projects and our desires and what we want to create in the world because we're not distracted by I suppose the, the strong biological urge to reproduce which is what happens when we're thinking about men and partners and and sexuality and all of those things not that that goes but it's just a different state mm. so that's pretty much what's happening. It, it will change the, the resilience. It's got a lot to do with progesterone. It's temporary. And there's a lot to support that as well in terms of certain herbal medicines. Magnesium can be amazing to help reduce 
um, some of that anxiety, particularly hormonally, and really just knowing our nervous system needs a lot of love and care around that time. And reducing or stopping alcohol altogether is probably one of the like best supplements you can take, if you can think of it that way. Supplements and things can become quite expensive, but it costs nothing. In fact, you'll save money if you can get into your head. Okay, if I can work towards maybe going, I'll see how I go a month off alcohol. Does that make me feel better? I'll see if I go go two months off. I'll look for alternatives that I can enjoy and still maintain a social life and all of those things. Give yourself that, that goal kindly and see how you feel. It's one of the best things that the evidence says you can do. I'm sober. So I've been sober for a really long time, but for listeners, I know there are a lot of women that say as they get older, um, they can't handle the alcohol or it makes them feel worse or, um, it shows up differently than it did when, you know, you were much younger. So what's ha- what does the alcohol do? Does it intensify anxiety? I mean, I, I did used to drink and when I did drink in my twenties and stuff, it definitely intensified anxiety, but is that similar to what's happening in the years post-menopause? I mean, I'm going to really scare people off alcohol if I go down this path too much. And I just want to preface this by saying that, you know, it's never all or nothing. And the anxious mind always wants to latch onto this kind of information. Like, you know, we start going down the realm of toxins in the environment and plastics mm. and we, we can freak ourselves out because it's everywhere and we can't escape it. All we can do is be informed by the information and make different choices to do our best that we can. With alcohol, it's kind of coming in our body from so many angles. As you were saying that, I'm like, how do I cover this question? Because it's often increasing or dysregulating our levels of inflammation in our body. And that is a whole element to some of the symptoms around perimenopause and menopause. Um, It is putting a lot of burden on our liver and our liver does the beautiful job of detoxifying particular hormones as well as alcohol from our body so that we're not getting imbalances happening. So if we're drinking alcohol, there's that impact that's happening on the liver. It's also influencing our gut microbiome. You think when you have a cut and you've hurt yourself, you're going to, if you don't have anything else available, you often are going to use an alcohol swab to disinfect the wound because you want to kill bacteria. There's all this bacteria in our gut and we're sloshing it down with alcohol. It's killing off your good bacteria when we drink, especially if we're drinking frequently. There'll always be those anomaly people who can just like, drown themselves in alcohol every single day and they seem to live to a hundred and you know can also chain smoke and all of that that's just life some people do have a greater level of resilience in one way or another but I mean we can question that person's quality of life as well and certainly it will create that inflammation and then of course we get the rebound effect with things with alcohol where the next day we're, we're often going to feel quite good when we have it initially it's that Oh, I feel relaxed. I've just like had a stressful day and I'm going to chill out with a glass of wine, but we'll feel the effects of it later. Uh, The next day, often we'll have that hangover where we have anxiety and you'll notice it even with one or two drinks, uh, especially as we do get older and we notice that we're more sensitive to these things. 
The other thing it impacts is our sleep quality. So it means we're getting lighter sleep. And during those hormonal changes, you don't need more of that. So it's kind of like if we take the alcohol out of the equation, we're removing this huge burden to all these beautiful systems in your body working really well and just allowing your body to function at its best. Like any symptom, if you are experiencing a symptom that's unpleasant and uncomfortable, it's your body communicating to you, hey, come look after me. We can do this better. And often there are many changes we can make. And we're often really glad that we made the changes in the long run. Yeah. We usually feel better after making these shifts. You know, I've never regretted becoming sober. So, and that's almost eight years. So, you know, there's a lot of freedom in those shifts in life that make us feel better and nourished and healthy and just loved. It's one of those lessons where we end up thinking, you know, I'm actually glad I had that so that I learned this, you know, or it can get us to that place where we have gratitude for our experience. And that's actually my ultimate aim to get people that work with me to it's, it's ultimately seeing anxiety as this messenger that has been guiding us all along from a place of love. It's guiding us back to the love. It's, it's saying, warning, warning, you're so far in fear right now. You're so far away from who you really are and the safety and the love that is seeking you. We're going to make you so uncomfortable, like hot coals that you have to jump out of there and seek a solution. You have to listen to the anxiety and you have to make some changes. Those changes might be literally, you know, the big ones like get out of this marriage, get away from this person, quit that job. You know, they're the things people I think are really scared that we have to do. Sometimes maybe we we need to, or we need to work towards that, but we can also do so much with, you know, get better sleep. Maybe that's what anxiety is trying to tell you really got to take this seriously, or maybe alcohol isn't mixing with you like it used to, or maybe it really never has. Mm, yeah. So when somebody determines, you know, that they have anxiety, they've got heart palpitations, however, it might be showing up. I I love the words, like the wisdom of the anxiety, like there is wisdom in anxiety. And I mean, it, anxiety can be debilitating in my experience. It can feel like you're drowning or, you know, you just can't catch a breath. However, it's there's it's showing us something that is ultimately for our highest good is that fair to say you know it might not feel like it in the moment but yeah on the other side that's right I mean it's like you know the um our pain is the portal to our to our healing or our gifts whatever that quote is I'm getting it wrong right now but essentially any kind of wound, if we look at it and address it with love, it's going to take us back to more wholeness within more of a sense of growth and more, uh, I suppose, knowing who we are and kind of why we're here. That makes Mm. sense. Yeah. Yeah. That feels like a very spiritual aspect of the Mm -hmm. anxiety you know? And so not everyone is ready for that. Not everyone's ready for that. I just want to give me, you know, the Prozac, give me the drugs. Yeah. 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 It can be intense. Like I think we were speaking about on your journey, you were speaking to the initiations that you, you went through and they're often not easy. They can use, you use quicksand when your parents divorced and 
I remember when my dad died, people would ask what it felt like. And it was like, you're a balloon, let go. Like you just have no foundation, you know? And it's like, that's how anxiety can show up where it feels like quicksand underneath you, but it's an invitation to heal and to rebuild that foundation. Exactly. Because we learn that, you know, we kind of get this idea that we're helpless and it's, it's, you know, forgetting our sovereignty, forgetting our power that we have. And so it's going to push you back to having to remember that, having to fight for that in you and claim it back and rebuild it because we were born with it. We are born powerful knowing, you know, I can just cry and I'm going to get food and I'm going to get loved and I'm going to get like, someone's going to take care of me. We expect that. You know, we expect that we don't question it. We don't doubt it as little babies. And then somewhere along the way, we forget we, and then we come back to remembering who we really are. Yeah. Yeah. So what is that process is the word I'll use look like to coming back to our truth, to mm-hmm. using that? I know that's a really big question. <laughs> it's not, I love it. We'll see how I answer a, it. I'm not sure right now. <laughs> Um, but to listening to the anxiety, like just listening to it. And, and I'll speak to that over the past couple of months, it has been so incredibly uncomfortable and to listen to the anxiety is to sit in the discomfort. Um, you know, yeah, just sitting in discomfort. And when, when you were speaking to certainty and safety earlier on, it's like, we strive for that, or we cling to that as humans because it's comfortable you know, but uncertainty is, is that discomfort. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a brilliant starting point. And that is really where we start to develop our tolerance for discomfort. If we can allow it to be okay, that there's a negative emotion present that your blue sky has now been clouded over and there's thunderclouds and there's, you know, lightning flashing if you can just let that weather move through without judging it without shaming it because so often we do we've been told you know you're the too sensitive one you're making a big fuss you're making this about you be quiet be a good girl be whatever right like we we shame the anxiety in us but we also shame other feelings along with that too don't be too sad. Don't be, you know, try and be happy. We really, really repress our anger because if one emotion's allowed as a, as a feminine being, it's the, it is the sadness. We're allowed to cry. That's kind of okay, but we're definitely not allowed to be angry. Um, which I think is a powerful way to reclaim that truth. So it all starts with just being comfortable with the uncomfortable, like you said, it will never feel a hundred percent comfortable. There'll always be a part of you that acknowledges this is discomfort, but you don't have to suffer alongside that. You can then step back from the experience into that conscious awareness and just watch it move through you. It might help to visualize and imagine that your internal state, your emotional state is a blue sky and any emotions coming through are just those clouds. It's that weather passing through. It doesn't need your intervention. It doesn't need you to do anything necessarily. You can just watch it and allow it. And that's what's going to help build your ability to move through those moments. But being that being said, it's going to be easier to do that, like I was saying, when your physical body is also supporting you at the same time. 
And when we've delved into a lot of those deep limiting beliefs, these ideas of I'm not enough or there's something wrong with me, I can't cope, I'm helpless, um, believing, you know, what they have is not available to me. Or also the other big one is I'm different. I'm the one that doesn't fit in. If we can start to dig those out <laughs> and shift our understanding of who we are from that mental level, again, all experiences of life can start to move through you in a more peaceful, calm way. And that is what I call being an anxiety master. It's not that we get to the mountaintop and the job is done. I mean, I really like people to be able to graduate away from me. They learn everything they need to have that power within them and navigate those moments. But the moments are going to keep coming. We're going to have things in life that upset us or scare us or challenge us or stress us. However, there are always ways we can navigate that experience with more peace. We don't have to be experiencing panic attacks. We don't have to be experiencing um, these really intense waves of anxiety the way that we might have in the past because the second you start resisting it and fighting it, hmm. the anxiety just gets bigger. It loves that resistance. It builds it further. So if we can go, okay, there's some anxiety. I'm not going to hate on you. I'm not going to wish you away. I'm not going to try and get rid of you. You can just be here. And all of a sudden what we notice is that anxiety kind of doesn't have anything to grip onto and it settles back down. So that's what I would say. That's my answer to your question about anxiety bringing us back to our truth. That is the truth that you are indeed incredibly powerful. You are a being of love. That is what you are. You are not this fear. It's all an illusion. That resistance felt like shoving something in the basement that's like kicking and screaming and closing the door and just like you know, pushing it away. Like there's something wrong with you. Stop. I don't want this anxiety to be here anymore. And in my experience, it just gets louder and louder and louder. Yeah. And that uh, is human nature too, to want to move out as well. It's the mind that wants to move us away from pain and towards pleasure, but we have conscious awareness too. And we can choose to direct ourselves away from those, those, I suppose, those survival instincts, that fear that the mind kind of resides in. In my book, I have a, a chapter where I talk about the dog at the door. So similar to what you just said, but imagining anxiety as like this pet dog that you leave outside and it's barking. It wants to come in. It's scratching at the door. And the more you ignore the dog, the louder it barks, the more it keeps scratching. It's getting more and more distressed. But when we open the door, we let the dog in. That's when he'll curl up and go to sleep. And we can see our anxiety that way too. Yeah. How does food play in with anxiety and with the gut, gut health, mm. the relationship with that? So, I mean, actually, when you said relationship, immediately I thought about our relationship with food because I do typically see one of the biggest coping mechanisms for working with anxiety, for, oh, sorry, not having to feel our anxiety is emotional eating. It's that it's going to quell the restlessness. It's going to distract you from that. So that's commonly something that I see in the clients I work with. And I make sure we're kind of, we have a discussion around that before we talk about nutrition, because I've been the person who went way overboard with the food rules and essentially created more anxiety for myself. Cause there were more ways I was getting it wrong, more ways I was failing, more ways I was not enough. 
And it literally was me pouring all my self-worth into, am I ticking all the boxes on the nutrition checklist and am I getting it all right? So my way of working with nutrition and food is very much taking all of that into account and just understanding it like learning a language and understanding a few basic rules, a few basic guidelines is a better word that can help you to make your own meals. I don't really give people a lot of recipes because I think firstly, food and cooking is a great way to be creative. It's a great way to use your hands and engage with like life, right? To prepare your own food. But essentially there are some steps we can work with, you know, making sure our meals are mostly built, built around protein and those kind of things. And you can start to work with the foods that you like and the foods you enjoy. And I teach people about using spices and things like that, that build flavor. Uh, so when we start to nourish ourselves, I mean, one of like step one, before we even consider the content of the food and the nutritional quality, it's just, are you eating regular meals? Because particularly for women, just given societal pressures and standards and, you know, the smaller you are, the better, right, is what we hear. We often, whether we're conscious of it or not, or we're just like not even aware because we've just been conditioned this way for so long, we kind of go, oh, I forgot to eat lunch. Yes, less calories. And instead, what we're doing is we're setting ourselves up for anxiety when we stay in those patterns, or we might be taking on something like intermittent fasting, or we might be kind of telling ourselves, I'm just doing intermittent fasting. It's good for me. Well, not for majority of women, particularly pre-menopause, because of our nutritional requirements through our cycle and that kind of thing. It's often we see periods stop for women uh, with fasting. So we typically need to keep eating and nourishing ourselves because that meal actually tells your body you're safe. It's saying our survival needs are met. You don't need to worry. We don't need to go into that state of survival. We don't need to be hyper-focused in solving the problem of where's where's the food coming from. And so three regular meals, have some snacks, you know, that is the starting point with food. It's balancing our blood sugar is going to come next because we don't want to be spiking up our in just having pure carbohydrates all the time because that's going to send us on a bit of a roller coaster of, oh, I've got energy. And then boom, I'm crashing at three o'clock in the afternoon. So we want to keep that, that fuel coming in and taking care of us and also a slow release. And that starts with protein in your meals. The gut health component is also very important because our, I mean, I've seen so many people come to me with what they would call IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, those variable, changeable, uncomfortable digestive symptoms that don't seem to get a proper diagnosis and you're left wondering what's going on. Uh, Research is showing around 80% of these IBS people who say they have IBS or have been told they have IBS actually have something called SIBO, which is small intestinal bowel overgrowth, which means that the bacteria in the large intestine have kind of overgrown up into the small intestine. And this is one of the biggest symptoms or the most common ones is ongoing bloating, discomfort with that distension. And it's really, really common. It often coincides with anxiety because when we're anxious, our blood flow moves away from our digestive organs. It moves to our limbs so we can fight or run away from a threat or we go into the freeze response. In any of those states, the blood flow is not with your digestive system. We get our digestive system kind of shutting down 
it for want of a better word, it goes into this state where it's uh, it's just not really working. It's not on because our priority in that moment is to to run away. It's not digestion. So we'll experience things like possibly everything goes through you, loose stools, or you might notice everything just stops altogether. And often there can also be with recurring gut issues, past trauma, because just think about how much that is is impacting the physical system. If you are stressed in your mind or anxious in your body, in your mind, you are feeling that in your body, your body is having a physiological response to the blood flows moving away from your digestion. It can't work as well. Now, what we can do about that, apart from addressing our traumas and looking at what's behind that, is also understand how our gut health and taking care of it can also positively impact our mind and how well we cope with life stress. And so we need to understand three things. Firstly, we have something called the vagus nerve that connects our brain to our gut. Our vagus nerve can basically regulate this process of directing blood flow back to our digestive organs and helping us to relax and calm down. And it's all part of like switching on our digestion. So one really easy way to do that is to consume bitter foods, all the foods that as a little child, you might've gone yuck, you know, broccoli, anything with a bitter um, taste, apple cider vinegar, lemon juice, uh, rocket leaves or arugula, all of these tend to create this sense of salivating in your mouth. If you're salivating, you've you've uh, activated your rest and digest response. You can't be anxious when you're salivating. How cool is that? And actually even just picturing and imagining producing saliva in your mouth, if you are in an anxious state, we'll, we'll do the same thing because that's how powerful our mind is. You can literally influence it that way. Um, our gut health also impacts our mind through our microbiome. So the bacteria that live in our gut, they send chemical messengers up to our brain that regulate the chemicals in our brain that influence just how well we can feel calm, feel relaxed, how well we can regulate our moods. So the better we're taking care of our gut in our microbiome, the better. So one of the best things I already mentioned was to not have alcohol and not have it so frequently, especially not the binge drinking that uh, is so culturally normal. And then the third way that our gut health influences our physical health and our mind is through inflammation. It really regulates the levels of inflammation in the body and also in the brain. And if we have a low level of inflammation in the brain, that can actually impact the balance of chemicals that communicate in our brain. It's how clearly we think it's brain fog, it's fatigue, but it's also anxiety and, and mood and depression too. So if we can reduce inflammation in our gut, we're going to reduce it in the brain too. It's interesting you brought up inter. I'm not going to say this word right. Fasting, just I'll say yes. the fasting <laughs> for short times because I've had so many women doing it in my life right now, like friends. And, and I, for myself, I thought about it when you're working with severe anxiety, the thought of being hungry on top of that just sounds terrible. Like doing something really not nice to my body. Often the way we cope or we manage intermittent fasting is empty stomach, have a coffee and then wait four hours or five hours or eight hours. And that is, oh my gosh, like a recipe for anxiety because you are, in order for us to feel energized when we have a coffee, it's because we are 
the, the caffeine stimulates your adrenal glands, which produce our stress hormones. You might've heard of adrenal fatigue or burnout. Those glands that can burn out are being stimulated to push out more stress hormones to wake us up because it's not energy. It's not, it's not literal food that's fueling you and giving you energy. So where's it coming from? It's coming from adrenaline and cortisol, your stress hormones when we have that coffee. So that's terrible. That's setting us up for a blood sugar roller coaster as well. And honestly, if I don't have breakfast today or if I don't have lunch today, I'm going to feel anxious because of how sensitive we are to our blood sugar fluctuations. So having regular meals, honestly, I'm pretty pedantic about it in a <laughs> relaxed way as I can, but it's really something that I prioritize in my life and I make sure the people that I work with, anyone I can talk to about it understands that too. It's just too important. Yeah. With other kind of trendy diets, we'll call them like veganism or carnivore. Carnivore is a big one that's been coming up lately. Keto. Are there any, I was vegan for quite some time. I'm not anymore. Um, are there any chances that those can increase anxiety, mental health? Yeah. Well, I would say typically around say you can obviously meet a lot of your nutritional needs and most of them with a vegan or plant-based diet. And there's a lot of ways that we can do that. We just have to work pretty hard to do it. We have to like, you got to stay finger on the pulse, you know, oh, did I get my B12 today? Have I got my zinc? Have I got my iron? Am I getting it from bioavailable sources where my body's going to absorb it as well? A lot of our plant-based sources, they're just a lot harder for our body to extract those, those minerals that we need, which are very important for anxiety. And I see a pattern of, I think it's because those of us who experience anxiety are usually very caring individuals, very heart-focused, and we can feel a lot of guilt too. And maybe that guilt started before you even thought about the animals. Maybe that started with people, caregivers actually putting some guilt on you. Like, gosh, you know, all the sacrifices we've made for you, you know, and you don't give anything back to us like that. It can start with that kind of rhetoric growing up in the household, or it can start with just noticing um, someone always pointing out these, these things that we should, should feel guilty about. Like, you know, look, you've left food on your plate, but without starving kids in Africa, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So there is a deep empathy and I think it's beautiful and the world damn well needs more of it. But equally, what we can see sometimes is we can't always meet all those nutritional needs. We can't always get that diet perfect. And if we're not on the supplements and doing all the things, we can easily get gut issues from following these kind of diets. We're often not necessarily getting enough protein. You certainly can, but you're not necessarily. And then there's there's other elements in that that can can influence, like the minerals and things like that that I mentioned that can be important. So that's one that stands out for me. I mean, carnivore is such an interesting one. There's, you know, you see the podcast episodes about like you don't need fiber and all of that, but. Uh, our bodies are amazing and adaptable. I mean, I used to think, oh my gosh, the one thing we can agree on in the nutrition world is that vegetables are good. Mm. And even, even there are some people that say no to that now. I ultimately would say with this food stuff, do we need these labels? Can we just make more conscious choices? And can we intuitively connect to our bodies? Because no doubt most of us 
have a sense or as long as you kind of also have the you've got the information you're informed about how it all kind of works then you can just feel into what your body is is telling you is right for you as well I don't really see one diet as the best diet I'm more than happy to work with someone who wants to follow that vegan diet someone wants to be a carnivore I mean we'll have to look into some elements around how their microbiome is functioning but obviously it can somehow I mean we see this in um the oh my gosh the name escapes me Eskimo people uh eat mostly I think whale blubber and things like that right and they must have a a functioning microbiome somehow so I kind of gave up about 10 years ago trying to figure out what the best diet was I followed and tried all of them uh, myself and just eventually learned what feels best for my body and that's pretty much having a lots of flexibility generally knowing the guidelines, following them as feels right for me, letting that fluctuate with my cycle and letting that change, you know, being intuitive around it as well. I love that intuitive eating where you're just listening to the body. What feels good? We know, well, I mean, we know when we're not disassociated or in one of those free states, right? I, when we're attuned to our body are the words that I'll use. You can tell when something feels good that you're eating, when it doesn't feel good to eat something. And so just listening to that, like this past week, I just want blueberries all the time. Well, I don't know. My body wants blueberries. So listening to that and not, um, going down rabbit holes about, well, maybe I'm eating too much fruit. So then there's sugar in it and da, 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 da. And even though it's a a healthy sugar, you know, how there's all these different, Trust me, I I know. Even like, um, you know, I I have some massive respect for Chinese medicine, but I've been told, you know, don't ever have like fruit basically or like cold food. Um, And my body really likes to have fruit, especially when I'm in a warm tropical climate too. Like I'm going to go with that because of we've got to factor in the environment we're in too. If I'm in the middle of winter, I'm not going to have a frozen berry smoothie because that going to cool my system down and again not feeling so good you know we, we can notice these things but on a hot summer day maybe that's a really great thing to have for your body it's full of antioxidants and it's going to help regulate your temperature so I think there's so much complexity here that if we do just simplify it to factoring in the basic principles of like fresh food the less processed the better most of the time and then consciously you know some days I'm going to go and have the cookie because I know I'm doing it, but I've also sat with my feelings and I've also gone for a walk and I've done the things that are taking care of me. And sometimes that is the self-care as well. It's the freedom to have the cookie is how I can take care of myself as well. Yes. You're not creating that resistance. Like I can never have a cookie. And then all of a sudden you eat a whole bag. (laughs) It's so rebellious. I love it sometimes, you know? Yes. yeah. Yeah. Are there herbs that are great to use with anxiety. Hmm. There are, but we can get into the realm of similar to allopathic Western medicine, just symptom cure. Like, like I'm, Mm. I'm, I'm feeling anxiety. So like, let's take this thing to stifle it down. I think there is a place for these things and a time for these things, of course, and medication included potentially. I don't want to shame anyone who is taking medication, who's found it very helpful for them, because sometimes we are in such a hole, we really do need some support to get to a place of coping. And then we might have the 
the ability, the capacity to sit with some of those feelings and to do the deeper work. It's just when we do that and then we kind of continue plastering over it and just forgetting about it, pushing through that we get into trouble and we'll, we'll experience more things coming up. So we want to, you know, do what we have to do to get through. So some of the herbal medicines that can be really helpful in that regard are things like kava is one amazing one. It's the herbal medicine name is Piper Mephisticum. It comes from different places around the world. One primarily is Fiji, the Fijian islands. Uh, you'll see kava. I've seen it in, um, in Whole Foods. They've got it like herb farm, do a beautiful kava liquid extract. Skullcap is another beautiful one, um, passion flower. And I really love those as a tea, as a herbal tea as well. Often they're not going to interact with any medications you might be taking or having a, an effect where you're taking so much that it could have some other effect on your body. With herbal medicines, disclaimer, everyone listening, if you're pregnant, breastfeeding, we've always got to be really careful with this stuff and make sure you check with your doctor that it's right for you, especially kava. But kava can be the most effective and really you'll you'll experience the immediate effects of it within, you know, 10 minutes of having a dose, you'll feel calm. And for me, sometimes I might have those tools around or you use them for myself. Let's say I've had a specifically stressful day and I've already been working on my stuff and I've already been processing, processing things. And there's something I just have to show up for, you know, and my heart goes out to like the mums out there or the people juggling, you know, multiple jobs and stresses. Sometimes we, we do have to get through a moment mm. as long as we're just not constantly getting through. That's more where we want to go with this stuff, but Carver, yeah. passion flower and skull cap. Mm. I love Carver. I, I use that quite a uh, bit. And Milky oat seed, I think, is it milky oat seed is another. Yeah. Well, I, the one that I know is we call it Avena sativa and it's yeah. Oats okay. is what we call it. So I'm sure it's the same thing, but it's a nourisher of the nervous system. Okay. What are some tools that you use or, or have in your book? Do you want to speak a little bit about your book here as well, but tools that you use for anxiety outside of food because we've kind of already touched on that yeah I would say honestly some of the like number one go-to as a tool is what we spoke about with letting the anxiety be there and that I want to really talk about what that practically looks like because I think it's so easy we hear this phrase sit with your feelings it's like what does that mean so literally you feel anxiety you're going about your day you take a moment, you sit down, you close your eyes, you maybe place a hand on your heart because that can make you feel more supported or a hand around your solar plexus area, your um, sort of middle of your abdomen. That might feel really comforting. You can give yourself that comfort as you do this. And then you go to the places where you feel the anxiety. You bring your conscious awareness, your focus there. You hold it for a few moments. I do guide this through in my book. So it's all there. If, if you want to go through this and you just let yourself notice the feeling and what you'll notice is if we can do this for long enough and long enough actually only means 30, 60 seconds, not very long, the feeling starts to change and often starts to quiet right down. And man, is that a powerful feeling mm -hmm. to just, and it's a peaceful feeling more than, more than anything, because wow, suddenly this thing that I always thought would just come and take me over and swallow me whole. 
I've actually got some power over it. I've got some control. So that's one really powerful one. I mentioned the bitter foods. Um, I will say if you're going to have apple cider vinegar, I do typically and often recommend this one, but I will say make sure you dilute it with water because I've had too many people mishear me or forget this part and then they end up getting nauseous and needing to throw up. And so what we need to do instead is make sure if you had a shot glass and you had one third full of apple cider vinegar, the other two thirds would be water. So just making sure we're always diluting that one. You're going to have it about 15 minutes before breakfast or before a meal. Um, but you can also have it if you're just feeling anxious and you need to help your body create that saliva response. That's one thing you can do. You can bite into a wedge of a lemon if you wanted to as well. And then one of my other favorites, I mean, gosh, I mean, there's so many. Uh, shaking is so powerful. So we can just be jumping up and down, shaking our limbs, letting that anxious energy move because often it does just want to move somewhere. And that's something really um, powerful that we can do. You might feel silly doing it, but your body will thank you and you'll thank yourself for doing it after. It's how we can shake off and release trauma Animals naturally will have this trauma response. They'll shake. So let's say like a zebra being chased by a lion, it will, and the zebra escapes, it's going to go back to eating grass after that stressful event. And the way that it does that and just goes completely back to baseline is through shaking its body. Yeah. So interesting how animals do that as their natural response, but it's not wired into us for some reason, but it's so powerful. Well, actually it is in us as well as human beings, but we suppress it just like we suppress all our feelings. So it's like, you know, it would feel strange to to do that. And so we kind of like hold it back. Yeah. <laughs> Does cold plunge, cold plunging come oh up for gosh. you around anxiety? Yes. Absolutely. I love cold showers, uh, cold water therapy, I think can be really, really powerful. I personally um, love to just have a warm shower to start my day and then uh, finish with 30 seconds of cold. Love jumping in a cold ocean if I can. See the language I use about it. I love it. I love it. I used to not love it. I used to say I hate cold water. Ew, the cold, gross. All of those things, I wasn't always someone who liked that stuff. But you see how this is a beautiful way we can build our tolerance for discomfort. And we can shift the language and the story we tell around it. Cold is your friend. You're going to feel so good after you do that dip in the ocean or the or a cold shower. Um, it's often better if we're warmed up beforehand and people sort of think they might be like going soft or something if they don't if they don't go straight into the cold. No, you're actually doing more having more benefits for yourself if you warm yourself up first and then do the cold. Uh, it's great after a workout because you're already warm and you're sweaty and then to like finish with cold. But what it does is it stimulates our vagus nerve. It sends us into that rest and digest mode. We'll feel invigorated. You get a rush of blood flow and energy to your brain. You can think clearly. You clear brain fog. You feel more energized. And most of all, you feel calm. So it's sort of like all the things we imagine a coffee does for us, but without the <laughs> jitteriness without the blood sugar crash without all the other things that coffee interrupts in our lives so it's like a really amazing coffee replacement yeah I started going into the ocean every day to work with the anxiety and also for insomnia because with the mm -hmm. menopause I was having quite a bit of insomnia and I actually crave it 
in a really good way every day where today it's tumultuous, it's wavy, super windy. So I'm like, I'm not going in the ocean. I had a cold bath and it was like so uncomfortable at first, but you just sink into it. And just like you said, it builds up that resiliency where it's like, I can yeah. sit in the discomfort and you feel amazing. Yeah. Heading out. Most people who hear about this, like it's very normal to say, I'm not a cold person. No, I'm never doing that. I could never do that. But when you do do it, because you physiologically can, you can get through it. It's only 30 seconds and it's always mm. the worst for the first 30 seconds because you can increase your time and you can do certain things later, but just start with 30 seconds. Uh, you show yourself you can be someone you didn't think you could be. Yeah. Yeah. It's and like you're more po powerful than the thoughts. Sorry. Yes. You're more you're powerful, more powerful than your mind than the mind you can overcome this and then you really get and cultivate this belief I can do anything mm. if I can do that yeah. yeah yeah have you seen a raise or a correlation post-covid with anxiety has that come up at all I just know when we were in the thick of covid you know 2020 it was like oh we're gonna see what this is gonna do to people in the next couple of years and that's where we're at now and just yeah you know, I think we are still in speculative territory with that, um, where it's mostly anecdotal. Not that that evidence isn't valid and important, but I don't know that there's been special like statistics that have come out to really show an increase. Though, I mean, I think, yeah, things like uh, there was a lot of concerns around suicide rates and things like that. I know particularly in Australia, what was published was that the rates were remaining exactly the same. I don't know. I don't mm -hmm. know. In the, like we can only go off what people are saying. And and I wonder how, uh, I mean, especially I, like obviously it varied very much in the US and depending on what state you're in and what the regulations were. In Australia, we had almost two years straight with like a few gaps here and there of like, oh, we come, come out of lockdown for a month or two. But basically it was two years of being in our homes and I wonder what that does to a generation of children. You know, what does that do for their socialization? A three-year-old or sorry, not a three-year-old, more, more like six or seven-year-olds and not be able to see other kids. Actually, even three-year-olds as well, because they're typically interacting with kindergarten and other children and no one was seeing anyone. And these are crucial moments of development. But, you know, you could pick out any age group and, and find some reason to feel concerned for the lack of socialization, the lack of being able to get out of the house and do things. So I, uh, people often say that it's the COVID, but then what did I say at the beginning? You know, these big moments happen. We think it's the thing now. We think it's what's happening now, but typically what impacted your ability to cope with this big challenge usually started way before. It was the moment you were five years old with your eyes open in the dark, alone in your bed, feeling scared, feeling sad. And for some reason thinking I'm alone and I don't know what to do with this feeling because at five years old, you cannot regulate your own nervous system. What do I do with these big feelings? I'm all alone. And then as an adult, you know, you could be 35 and experiencing something like being locked in your house or feeling concerned about, you know, there's all this fear around and fear is, you know, contagious. We're feeling it in the collective. We see it on the street and people's faces and we can feel it. And what do I do with all these feelings? I can't cope with this. It's the same thing coming out uh, from 
something that started a long time ago. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense where COVID might have just triggered something that's been there. That's not to say it wasn't traumatic as well, but usually these traumas kind of like we're predisposed in, in some ways. Then there's something like, I mean, if you're in a car accident, were you predisposed to the car accident? I think people recover in different ways from that event, Mm. right? So some people might move on more efficiently and some people might stay locked in the PTSD of that experience for a lot longer. And again, that's where we can go back to some things that might've happened earlier in life. Mm, Yeah. So your book, The Anxiety Reset Method, do you want to speak to what the book's all about, where it's available, all that magic? Of course. So the book is really just about everything we spoke about. It's all in there. Um, It's a 12 week process that you can work through because it can be quite overwhelming as well. I think I've shared a a whole colorful rainbow of information and it's like, we talk about one aspect and then another one, and there's so many things to consider. So it's a succinct format that calmly, gently guides you through um, this process of uncovering the questions. What is this anxiety here for? What's it here to tell me? Um, And helping us to guide ourselves back to our true selves. So we move through it all. There's the resilience shield in there. And then once you've been through the whole process, you can look back easily at, um, there's a summary page and you need to understand the deeper information behind it. But once you do, just ask yourself in any kind of anxious moment, where am I missing something on my on my checklist here? And it's all there for you, easy to access and easy to find those answers and take back your power in that moment. It's not just, oh, this anxiety is here for no reason. I've been especially cursed and there's something terribly wrong with me. No, there are specific things that that anxiety is trying to tell you and you can go and address those. Could it be as simple as get a decent night's sleep tonight or go have lunch? Or it could be as as much as, okay, like you have this big belief that you're not enough and all of it can be worked with and all of it can help us gain back our own sense of power. Beautiful. And it's available everywhere, Amazon. It, the- it, oh, I don't think we're on Amazon right now, but it is available um, internationally. I'll send you a link. <laughs> it's okay. available um, online and it can be ordered internationally. But at the moment, it's unfortunately physically in bookstores around Australia only. Okay. Okay. Perfect. What comes up for you around screens and anxiety? Interesting. I love the book Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. I don't know if you've Stolen seen it. Focus. No. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, it's, um, it's definitely on the bestsellers list at the moment, but basically he's looking at the question of, is it all our fault that we can't pay attention? Do we all literally have ADHD the way that it feels like when you read those symptoms and we think, Oh, that's me. Or is there something else going on, going on more societally, more system in the system? And the answers tend to be more, it's not our fault as much as we think it is that we're addicted to our phones. There are literally very deliberate psychological hacks built into the technology that we use that have us continually trapped in paying attention to your phone and going on to the next video and the next video and the next video and the infinite scroll where you can never get to the end. It's only that moment that your dog barks or your kid runs in and says, hey, look at this, that you can break the attention and come out of that dream that wormhole you were in so 
screen time is I think there's a lot of guilt and a lot of self-blame and we need to understand that these devices are designed to capture our attention and also we can't eradicate them from our experience so you can set the timers and you can set the kind of like personal boundaries but there might be other things you can do with actually how your phone works as well things like grayscaling the the screen so that it doesn't show color can reduce the addictiveness of the buttons it's bright it's colorful um I do think it impacts anxiety for sure because it's just more disconnection from ourselves. And I don't quite know what the answer is to what's going on because I don't think it's enough to just blame our willpower. Just like emotional eating doesn't come from your lack of willpower. It's it's because you're in pain. Um, often we're going to our phones partly to escape and partly to numb our emotions, but also partly because we literally are compelled to and you have to function your life in to be in modern society with a smartphone um it's designed to capture your attention so the hope and this is not my message but i'm happy to share it because i think it's so important what johan hari comes to in his book is that honestly just like we had revolutions around we used to have lead in paint and people spoke up about that and said this is not okay this is making us sick we've got to change this eventually now we don't have lead in paint uh once upon a time it wasn't okay to be gay and now it is in most or many parts of the world in a in a way that it, it wasn't before and that started with societal change societal change feels like a mountain you're climbing that's just impossible but at the end of the day it is possible there have been many experiences of this and I think that is ultimately what has to happen with our screens and our phone usage it's not your fault is my main mm-hmm. main message there because I could have gone down that road and you can but I don't think it's very fair Yeah. Yeah. So how do we speak out against the phones? You know, is it that they're designed in a way that isn't like slot machines or so they're not addictive? And yeah. So it's, it's a really complex issue and, um, in stolen focus, it goes into it a lot more, but basically, because it's so complex, we need to have regulation on social media businesses, um, which are designed to, obviously they're a business and they're under capitalism so it's all about making more 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 money and that is dependent on more 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 of your attention and focus being directed to your screen so they use all the ways they can and that's and these are good people too that might even be aware of what they're doing that we're all kind of stuck in this we can't get out of it because like it's not like the baddies are doing this to us it's literally we're kind of all trapped in this whole cycle. So unless we have some kind of regulation on how those social media businesses are run and what they're allowed to do in terms of hacking into our psychology and our attention, we won't be able to. And, it, and it's, a, you know, it's about making money. Um, but also I would say it's, it's more complex than that at the same time as well. You know, they're growing a business, that's their job. Someone might just be saying, well, this is my job and I'm, this is my profession. So it's really hard, but I think change will start. There's a lot of documentaries now about this, about social media and how it impacts us. And hopefully, hopefully some things start to change. Yeah. There are some great documentaries and within those, I think there's links of where you can go to, to start to create change on how these companies run. Yeah. Everything for sure. 
yeah, hopefully this conversation right now and the people that listen to it is part of that change as well. It's just our awareness. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember the names of the documentaries right now, but I'll post them in the, in the show notes Mm -hmm. for sure. What's been your biggest lesson along the way? (laughs) In life? (laughs) Yes. Oh my gosh. Whatever comes forward, which everyone wants to be spoken. Maybe it's that I don't know what I don't know. Like this sense of, I think we go through various stages of our lives thinking we know everything. You know, I I thought that at 16 years old, I thought that at 22, I thought that at like wherever I'm at and we just never know. So I'm really at this place of humble naivety, like aware of my naivety that I'll always have because we can't know everything. I was raised in a household where there was a pressure to know everything, whether it was deliberately spoken or not, it was subtle. It was like, what? You don't know the answers. And so there was a lot of, oh my gosh, I have to know the answers. Now I know I don't have to know all the answers. I can never know all the answers. No one can. And if anyone's claiming that they know everything, there's something they haven't addressed in themselves, an honest perspective that they need to look into because we really don't know it all. I don't believe in absolutes anywhere. I think the truth is some, the truth is somewhere in the middle ground of any kind of extreme. Like for example, someone who's like a hundred percent, every human being should be eating a carnivore diet. That person, you know, like how could, how can that be possibly be true? So we have to somehow find the truth in the middle. We don't know what we don't know. Mm, beautiful. How do you experience the mysteries? I love this question. I experience the mysteries. It follows on from what I just said. I love that I don't know what I what I don't know now. And that is the mystery. It's like, okay, what am I not seeing? But also what where is the magic in this universe? It's not as obvious and blatant as Harry Potter. It's not that I can cast a spell and, you know, magic sparks fall out of my fingers. It's magic in the ways of like the awe and wonder for the complexity of this universe, how it all works. It's delving deeper into something I might've once upon a time dismissed as silly and, um, and kind of fairy tales like astrology and seeing, oh my gosh, actually it's really complex and fascinating human design, all of these things. So I, it's continuing to ask questions and be open and be wildly surprised that just as life gives us a twist and a turn that is devastating and we would say quote unquote bad it also gives you amazing surprises that blow your mind in equal measure I feel that are good that make us feel good about being alive so it's it's understanding that part of the mystery is knowing there's this surprise waiting for you always in life. And it, and it always does. And I'm all like, not every day, but there will frequently be these moments of like, wow, this is so good. Mm. Just as it's so bad sometimes too. Yeah. It's like sitting in that uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And seeing it as a good thing. Yeah. Surrendering to it, not fighting it or trying to control or grip. I feel like that's one of the biggest lessons on this planet. At least it has been on, on my journey is just letting go of control yeah. and surrendering and sinking into the uncertainty, you know, yeah, trust. That, that is the journey of mastering that anxious mind. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. How do you root into the self? 
I think the easiest way, I mean, I do have a morning practice of like meditating and connecting to myself, but when I really need to go deep, it's nature, you know, immersing myself in nature. I love, it's what I said earlier, I did as a child all the time, just hours of being in nature. So I might on a weekend afternoon, just start walking off into a beach and sand dunes and crawling around in nature. I just, and finding a spot to sit and look at the waves and just think about life and think about things and process what's going on in my life. That's how I deeply root. Like the antidote to the screens. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yes. There's so much more magic in nature than there is on our phones for sure. And so it can be so healing in itself. Yeah. And maybe that's a, a power shift too, in that whole screen um, discussion earlier is, is acknowledging, yeah, the screens are powerful and the hacks that hack our psychology um, to get us addicted and looking at them all the time, but equally so is nature <laughs> incredibly powerful to captivate our attention. We'll just sort of sink into that frequency of it. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything on your heart that I haven't touched on that you want to share before we close? Honestly, I think just to summarize the whole thing, it's, it's just asking that question, like, am I coming from fear right now? Or am I coming from love? And when you're in enough anxiety, you'll start asking that question more and more, and you'll start to naturally move yourself more to love. And love is where the answers are. That is your true self. It is who you're meant to be on this planet. And that's really all I want people to know as they walk away from this. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Where can everybody find you? Any offerings that you have? Yeah. Thank you so much, Lisa. I love to hang out over on Instagram at Georgie, the naturopath, but I'm also, I have a podcast called the anxiety reset podcast, and those are probably the best ways to find me. I also have a free masterclass that uh, goes for about half an hour that takes you through all of the stuff we just discussed and kind of a blueprint of how to address this high functioning anxiety. So that's also available. Beautiful. Well, it'll be in the show notes where everybody can reach out to you and purchase the book and all that kind of magic. So thank you so much for this conversation, love. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me for an episode of the Phoenix Rising podcast. Please like, share, download, subscribe if you enjoyed this episode and I will see you next week for another episode on the Phoenix Rising podcast. Sending so much love.